FM website on the home page. KBOO Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of the Northwest Deaf Arts Festival on Saturday, June 16th at Mississippi Studios in Portland. The Northwest Deaf Arts Festival consists of a family-friendly matinee show as well as an adult-only 21 and over evening show. Performers include hip-hop artist Sean Forbes, dancer Antoine Hunter, poet Raymond Luzak, and more. Again, that's the Northwest Deaf Arts Festival on Saturday, June 16th at 2 p.m. and 6 p.m. Mississippi Studios is located at 3939 North Mississippi Avenue in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Good morning. It's 9 o'clock. You are listening to KBOO Portland. And here's what we have coming up for you this morning on KBOO for the remainder of the morning. First, at uh, coming right up, it's Sojourner Truth Radio. Today, MIT professor Craig Wilder discusses his book, Ebony and Ivy, Race, Slavery, and the Troubled History of America's Universities. At 10 o'clock, it's Eric Cascadia, headlines, interviews, and commentary. At 10.15, Flashpoints with Dennis Bernstein. And at 11 o'clock on the Burt Dirtbag, uh, Glenn Andreessen talks all things gardening and takes your calls. We thank you, KBOO members, for your great support out there. You know you tune into KBOO to stay informed about the true issues of the people. You've got to support that community radio station, KBOO. You can go to kboo.fm and click on dan- Donate to become uh, become a member of this important voice. We urge you to do that today, tomorrow, and into the future. We love your support. Thank you very much. Here's Sojourner, Tr- Sojourner Truth Radio. Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, Ebony and Ivy, Race, Slavery, and the Troubled History of America's Universities. MIT professor of history and author Craig S. Wilder is our guest. How were universities like Harvard, Yale, Rutgers, Brown, the College of William and Mary, and others complicit in maintaining and promoting chattel slavery in the Americas? We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headline. I'm Max Pringle with these headlines. President Trump and Kim Jong-un committed Tuesday to complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula during the first meeting in history between a sitting U.S. president and a North Korean leader. Trump agreed to halt U.S. military exercises with treaty ally South Korea. Trump and Kim came together for a summit in Singapore that seemed unthinkable just months ago when the two nations traded nuclear threats. The gathering was an attempt to start a process of denuclearizing the Korean Peninsula. Trump struck an optimistic note during a document signing ceremony. We're very proud of what took place today. Uh, I think our whole relationship with North Korea and the Korean Peninsula is uh, going to be a very much different uh, situation than it has in the past. The two leaders spoke for about five hours. Kim said through an interpreter that he thinks the talks can lead to greater trust between the two nations. We had a historic meeting and decided to leave the past behind and we are about to sign a historic document. The world will see a major change. Trump cast the decision to end war games with allies South Korea while talks continue as a cost-saving measure but also called the exercises inappropriate during negotiations. The details of how and when the North would denuclearize are apparently yet to be determined. The most closely watched race in Nevada's primary election today is the battle for governor. Clark County Commission colleagues Steve Sisolak and Christina Junkiliani 
are vying to be Nevada's first Democratic governor in two decades. Meanwhile, President Trump figures to be a factor in Republican elections in South Carolina, another one of five states holding primaries today. Republican Governor Henry McMaster has the president's backing, but faces challenges from four other candidates. McMaster endorsed Trump in the state's early presidential primary in 2016. Primary elections are also scheduled today in Maine, Nevada, North Dakota, and Virginia. Lawyers for Maryland and the District of Columbia accused President Trump in federal court Monday of profiting on an unprecedented scale from foreign government interests using his Washington, D.C. hotel. But a Justice Department lawyer insisted Trump isn't breaking the law because he provided no favors in return. At issue is the Constitution's Emoluments Clause, which bans federal officials from accepting benefits from foreign or state governments without congressional approval. The plaintiffs argue Trump's D.C. hotel, which has become a magnet for foreign governments, harms area businesses because of the president's financial ties to its operations. No previous case on the subject has made it this far. Extreme fire danger prompted officials to shut down a sprawling forest that includes some of Colorado's most stunning mountains in a region that attracts tourists from around the world. It's a rare tactic also being used in neighboring states as the U.S. Southwest struggles with severe drought. National forests and parks in Arizona and New Mexico have already been shut down as precautions. San Juan National Forest officials in southwestern Colorado plan to close hundreds of miles of trails and thousands of miles of back roads to hikers, bikers, horseback riders, and campers as soon as today to prevent the possibility of an abandoned campfire or any other spark from starting a wildfire. It's the first full closure of a national forest in Colorado since 2002, which was another very dry year. The move comes as residents of more than 2,000 homes have been forced to evacuate because of a fire that started June 1st in the forest and spread to about 35 square miles as of Monday. Advocates for increased social services are calling California's recently completed budget agreement a disappointment. They say vulnerable communities like seniors, young children, and low-income people will feel the pinch of underfunded services. Christopher Martinez reports. Anthony Wright is director of the group Health Access. He says the budget deal had no increases for health care programs like Medi-Cal. With the Trump administration's effort to sabotage our health care system, we really needed some countermeasures by the state to try to prevent premium increases and disenrollments. Um, and unfortunately, we may see a, a rise in the, in the level of uninsured. Activists had supported proposals to offer help for low-income people trying to buy health insurance and for certain seniors who face losing Medi-Cal eligibility when they turn 65. They also backed proposals to cover undocumented youths and seniors in Medi-Cal. Those were in a health-for-all package of legislation that was left out of the budget deal. The deal also omits a proposal that would have included some undocumented immigrants in the state's earned income tax credit for low-income residents. Other advocates say their disappointed early childhood health and nutrition were not a priority in the budget. Both the American Heart Association and the group California Food Policy Advocates had supported funding for child care providers to offer meals for their low-income children. That's a program that was cut during the Great Recession. The advocates say they'll be keeping up the pressure on lawmakers and the governor, and they're already looking forward to making their pitch to the next California governor. On the state capitol beat, I'm Christopher Martinez. For the second straight year, throngs of Bay Area basketball fans will get to celebrate the Golden State Warriors with a parade for a team some are calling an NBA dynasty. Hundreds of thousands of fans are expected to line downtown Oakland streets today to cheer the Warriors winning their third NBA title in four years. The parade route will begin at 11 on Broadway and 11th and will end with a celebratory rally near Lake Merritt. Oakland officials are recommending fans use public transit. BART is running extended rush hour service all day. I'm Max Pringle. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. We now go to our interview with MIT history professor and author Craig S. Wilder about his book, Ebony and Ivy, Race, Slavery, and the Troubled History of America's Universities. Professor Wilder puts together the true story of the hidden interrelationship between the country's most elite universities and colleges and the institution of slavery. Dr. Craig Wilder, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
I wanted to find out from you what inspired you to get into this particular field and in particular to do the book that we're going to be discussing today, Race, Slavery, and Troubled History of America's Universities, Ebony and Ivy. Actually, you know, about a, a more than a decade ago now, I was making a move, professional move, from Williams College, where I'd been teaching, to Dartmouth College. And I had decided to give myself an assignment, uh, coming out of my last book project um, in the Company of Black Men, which studied African influences on early New York and, and black radicalism and organization in early New York. Um, I was going to explain how black abolitionists, I was going to write an article to explain how black abolitionists got their educations and entered the professions, given the fact that they couldn't go to college. They were excluded from the nation's colleges and universities by those universities' racial bar. And so how do you become a minister, a teacher at the colored school, or, or a, um, a, a doctor, for that matter, if you can't attend university? And so I was tracing the stories and the journeys of these often teenagers who traveled all over the Northeast looking for schools that would accept them or friendly ministers who would teach them sort of in an apprenticing mode. Um, and I became much more interested in the fact that they had been excluded from the colleges and why the colleges were excluding them. Um, as I traced their journeys and the extraordinary um, struggle that they had to acquire education, the violence that they met and they confronted as they tried to access education, these sort of mobs that attacked schools um, that were willing to admit even a single black student. Um, I became much more interested in the nature of education in American society and the role that colleges and universities played in shaping the racial civilization of the United States. Um, I stopped seeing colleges and universities as these sort of passive institutions that sit in the backdrop of history and observe. And I started seeing them as institutions that actively participate in shaping history in determining who can be educated and who can't, um, and in sustaining and um, extending the, the power dynamics of American society, the status quo of American society. Yeah, and I noted also that you began as a community organizer in, you know, in your, your adult life, and a lot of people uh, got involved in, in community organizing. But uh, they're uh, historically, just moving to the present for a moment in, in the past few mm -hmm. decades, there has been a tension between the community and the academy and people right. who are f based on the academy and accountability to the community. And noticing your work with BARD and other projects. Um, I wondered if you could just say something a bit about balancing that and uh, the interrelationship and the importance of that kind of balance. You know, I think when I, while, while I was in college, I, as you said, I went to Fordham University in the Bronx, and um, I'm out of Brooklyn, out of Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn. Um, and, you know, um, when I got to college, part of the way that I came to understand my fortune at being in college, my, the opportunity that I had, was by looking for opportunities to sort of remain connected to communities like the one I came from. And so right outside the gates of, you know, this sort of um, Catholic University in the middle of the Bronx was the South Bronx, um, you know, teeming with all sorts of issues and questions and pressures and dynamics, much like the neighborhood I came from in Brooklyn. And so I used the opportunity while I was in college to do a lot of off-campus work which then led to a position as a community organizer. After I graduated from college, I spent the next year or so doing organizing in the Bronx. Um, and, you know, this is the Bronx's burning Bronx. This is the Bronx at what um, was often perceived as the height of its urban crisis, um, which was very similar like the crisis, uh, to the crisis that was happening in my own neighborhood in Brooklyn. Um, and so for me, the relationship between the academic pursuits, the the ability to study, read, research, and write for a living, um, and its connection to the real lived experiences of actual people um, has always been central. Like, it, you know, it, it, it helps me make, the one thing helps me make sense of the other. Um, and being connected to real communities with real issues and struggles has helped me to make sense of my own um, relationship to the academy where I'm both an insider and an outsider at times. Um, and, 
you know, I'm I'm part of these institutions, but I also, in fact, need to stand apart from them at times as a critic of them, um, to challenge them, to use their resources in ways that actually do the greatest good for the greatest population of people. Yeah, well, that is uh, that is so uh, interesting, and I, I think very much needed. And I'm sure, as you say, one does inform the other because we see all too often people get into the the academy and kind of are stuck there and don't have a relationship with communities that they came from or even uh, communities outside of the academy. So I'm sure that um, you have found in your work that it has actually strengthened your work within the academy itself. Yeah, and you know, it takes a bit of energy. I mean, I think you, we tend to reward <laughs> isolation. You yeah. know, we, the academy is organized in a way that rewards us for isolating ourselves often from the greater population. It rewards us for sort of focusing on the very esoteric realities of our own research writing and for writing to a very a, a quite limited audience of um, scholars at other institutions like ours. Um, and there aren't a lot of rewards for breaking that isolation. There aren't a lot of incentives to break that isolation and to reach out to broader communities of people. But in my mind, that's exactly the the reason why universities exist. You know, they exist to do social good, to do um, the greatest good to the public. So we have to resist that tendency toward isolation and alienation, because I think it's actually a socially irresponsible incentive. Yeah, and you say um, it, it takes great energy because, uh, you know, the way things are set up within the academy, I mean, so much of your time and focus is needed uh, not only to do your work, but also just confronting the issues within the um, campus itself, the academy itself, having to do with race, for example. I mean, you're a man of African descent, you know, um, economic divides, et cetera, <laughs> that it could really take all you've got to, to get through through that and yet uh, be able to stay connected to community. So yeah, you can have a full career and never leave your building you know, <laughs> uh, on, yeah. on one of these campuses. And, you know, um, and, and that means and that doesn't mean that one wouldn't have been engaged in real issues because they're real issues for our students, issues of the cost of higher education, um, the experience of students of color on campus diversity questions, all sorts of questions, you know, um, gender and sexuality, inclusion and resistance. There, there are enough political issues on campus to keep one quite busy. Um, but I also think that we have to break the conceit of thinking about ourselves all the time and actually um, you know, look at the, our impact as institutions of higher education on the greater population. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and my guest is Craig Stephen Wilder, has a book out, Ebony and Ivy, Race, Slavery, and the Troubled History of America's Universities. And I, I wanted to, to start off the discussion in a way with a broader view and then getting into some specifics, uh, you know, the clearly the conquering of native people, stealing the land, getting rich and educated off the slave trade, but also governing a free population with a history of resistance. And in fact, that latter phrase is from within your book itself. So the people um, in in the colonies first coming uh, to the United States, you know, I just want you to talk a little bit about that because that is really the setup for so much of what happened after they arrived. You know, there was this really interesting moment as I was doing the research for the book where I was struggling to understand a phenomena that happened repeatedly in the colonial world. Um, if you think about Virginia, um, the Virginia colony, Jamestown, is established in 1607. And within a decade, in less than a decade, they've gotten a charter from the, a royal charter from the Crown of England to establish a university in Enrico, Virginia. Mm. Um, they've been granted 20,000 acres to su help support the school. Um, the About 300 people have been are being sent to basically become tenants on the university grounds from which the rents, the rents from which will actually pay to run the university. Um, and a rector has been assigned, an experienced missionary who had done missionary work in East India, has now been assigned to the Americas, to the Virginia College, Thomas Coleman. But you have this sort of rather odd moment in Virginia, at a time when the colonists are actually struggling to feed themselves. 
yeah. when the death rate in the Virginia colony is extraordinarily high, and when there are very real security issues about for the colonists, uh, they're going to the tremendous expense um, and expending the energy to raise a college. In New England, the Puritans arrive in Massachusetts in 1630. Within six years, they've got a college charter, and they've begun Harvard. And again, at a moment when the colonists are dealing with serious security issues, the death rate is much lower in, um, in Massachusetts. Um, but in fact, they have serious uh, you know, um, security issues. They're going to the expense and they're expending the energy to raise a college. You can also see this in New Spain much earlier when the Spanish invade the Caribbean and what's now Mexico and Peru. You can see it in New France, eastern Canada, when the French um, begin their first colonies. Almost immediately, Spanish Catholics, English Protestants, French Catholics begin building colleges. And it forces one to rethink the role of the college in the colonial world. Why are they expending this kind of energy and this kind of money yeah. establishing institutions for higher education in places that have not actually um, dealt with the immediate crises that they're facing, just sustaining themselves? And the answer is actually that the college is part of the apparatus for achieving security. Um, the college allows one to begin the process of evangelizing and missionizing Native American um, peoples, the surrounding Native nations and tribes. It allows one to begin a process of almost constant cultural warfare in which one extends, um, when Christianizes the Native population, brings in young Native students um, into Christian schools um, for conversion, for language acquisition, for a broad education, and then sends back into Native American communities, as one uh, missionary will put it, um, people of their own color and blood um, to continue or to accelerate the process of cultural conversion. So colleges are part of the instrumentality of colonialism. Um, they're actually, um, th there's a very good reason in that, in that case to build colleges early, because the college allows one to um, achieve security through mechanisms that don't rely upon military power alone. Um, those sort of cultural wars are going to be incredibly important to achieving a kind of security and stability for colonies in the Americas. Right, and, and also creating wealth <laughs> as, and, as and well. And also creating wealth, yeah. Yeah, wealth, wealth and, and security. But, you know, you can, and, you can see this at early Harvard. You know, mm -hmm. as we, you know, Harvard is established in 1636. Um, the Virginia College, which would have been the first one, um, is destroyed by a Native American war that breaks out in the early 1620s between the Indians and the Virginians. And so that college never gets established. Harvard's established in 1636. There's a war the very next year, in 1637, the Pequot War in southern Connecticut, of the English versus a um, pan-Indian sort of um, resistance. Um, the, it, it culminates in the Pequot Massacre and um, the destruction of um, hundreds of Pequot men. But the uh, um, hundreds of women and children are also taken captive. That very next year, a ship leaves New England. It's the first slave ship to leave New England. It's carrying Pequot women and children for sale in Bermuda and the West Indies. And it returns um, in 1638 with various commodities, including black people. Well, Harvard gets two things at that moment. It gets 2,000 acres of Pequot land that's been carved up after the English conquered the Pequot. Um, and so it gets as part of its endowment, 2,000 acres in Connecticut, a former Pequot territory. But it also gets its first slave, a black man who's referred to as, by the students as the Moor, who's one of the earliest residents of, the, of Harvard Yard and the Harvard campus. And so the beginnings of Harvard tie the institution to both the conquest of Native people and the enslavement of Africans. And those connections then grow, in fact, rather quickly, over the next several decades. Yeah, and, and in fact, you talk about the, the Indian for African trade or, or slave right. trade, and yeah. I suppose that was the beginning of it. Of it. That's, yeah, that's one of the beginnings of it. Mm -hmm. in, in the English colonies, um, you know, th that's the early origin of it, and there's a, there's a healthy trade in the Carolinas eventually, in Virginia and in New England, in which we exchange conquered Native people and captured Native people for Africans the Native people often being sold into the West Indies, but uh, but also sold into um, New France, into eastern Canada, where there's a fairly healthy market for enslaved Indians. 
you talk in the book about the first five colleges in the British American colonies, which are Harvard, William and Mary in 1693, Yale 1701, Codrington in 1745, and Barbados and New Jersey, which is now a Princeton, I think, right? Right. And, and 1746. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So th- that that was interesting to me because you know, of course, being from Barbados and and Codrington yes. happened to be the place my dad did his uh, teacher training at Codrington. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, okay. I, I had no because, of course, growing up there, right? We weren't taught any of this stuff. So, right. you know, what, well, what do, I wasn't what do we yeah, know? I, <laughs> I went to one of these colleges and I've taught for and I've yeah, worked for a couple of them, and I knew none of this either. So, okay. The past decade. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I I wanted you to talk a little bit then about the Caribbean connection here in terms sure. of the interrelationship with the slave trade because not a lot is known about that either and Barbados being very prominent in it as being one of the wealthiest at the time. It's actually the wealthiest. The Mm. the wealthiest possession that the English have in the Americas is Barbados. And as um, multiple historians of New England and of Harvard will point out, that period I was talking about when the college gets its first slave right after the Pequot uh, massacre, this is the beginning of the um, commercial relationship that will save New England. New England emerges in the late 1630s and then through the 1640s and 1650s as the um, supply center, the the provisioning center for a rising economy of plantation slavery in Barbados and the British West Indies and then ultimately what becomes the um, mainland, the south of um, what's now the south of the United States. But New England actually will send ships into the West Indies supplying the West Indies, Barbados, for instance, with everything that it needs to um, sustain itself so that almost every inch of that valuable um, Barbadian soil can be turned over to commodity crop production with the use of slave labor. Um, And the food supply will largely be augmented from the northern mainland. Um, And so New England ships bring everything from vegetables to um, salted and dried fish to um, wood for the to make the barrels that rum is carried in, um, to candles so that enslaved people can actually work in the evenings um, in the process of um, you know, refining and milling sugar into molasses and rum um, while they work the fields during the daytime. Um, you know, New England will become, in fact, the supplier of the West Indies that helps the West Indies, the British West Indies, um, sustain this incredibly profitable plantation economy. Um, and by doing so, New England actually managed to, manages to emerge as a central sort of um, site in the merchant and the Atlantic trade, eventually actually extending their trade into supplying the West Indies and the American South with enslaved people, too. And so they'll expand into the African slave trade and do, in fact, the whole gamut of supply that sustains plantation slavery um, and allows it to um, maintain its extraordinary, extraordinary profitability. The American colleges that are established from Harvard on in the English colonies are, in fact, part of this economic nexus. And part of their role is actually to supply those colonies with ministers, um, with uh, with officials, um, and so what one has is this ex- in this really quite quite tightly braided world of um, English colonies connected together both economically, socially, intellectually, um, and then through their religious and their cultural institutions. We tend to think about the United States today and, and project back those boundaries on the past, and that doesn't work particularly well. You know, Barbados is central to the fate of New England. Um, New England can't survive without Barbados. The mid-Atlantic colonies are actually fighting. New York and, and Pennsylvania, New Jersey, are fighting to break into the trade, um, that uh, in, into the supply trade to the West Indies um, and for their own commercial fates. And so before the, American, the decades of the American Revolution, one really has to think about the British Atlantic world rather than the 13 colonies that become the United States, because those 13 colonies often have closer and more intimate economic and social ties to the West Indies than they do to each other. 
Our guest is Craig Stephen Walder. He has a fascinating book out entitled Ebony and Ivy, Race, Slavery, and the Troubled History of America's Universities. And he himself is based at MIT. You know, it's interesting to hear you talk about this because when I first went to to the UK and saw, you know, basically the wealth that the slave labor, those of us and and Barbados created, it was most disconcerting. And also the fact that the British working class didn't really seem to get much of it. The wealth, I mean, the, the plantocracy, there's still today, by the way, called the plantocracy in Barbados, but the plantocracy were so enormously wealthy because, but they also played a huge role. I mean, the, the trade was going from the colonies to Barbados, but there was a lot of... Um, um, money also coming into these colleges from places right. like Barbados. Is right. that right? Absolutely. In fact, actually, this is the story of Codrington College. Yeah, this is um, you know Christopher Codrington, um, Her Majesty's Commander uh, for the um, West Indian Islands. The um, you know in the early 18th, 18th century, the early 1700s, I believe his final will is around 1710 or 1712, somewhere in there. Um, it leaves in his will. Um, a couple of plantations for the support of a college on the island. Um, and it takes, in fact, multiple decades for that college to be established for a lot of reasons. You know, you know the other planters are very worried about um, the social effects of establishing a college. There have been a series of slave revolts in Barbados and the British West Indies um, that lead them to be even more concerned about their ability to control and regulate the colonial population and particularly the enslaved part of the Codrington grant and this is sort of you know um, the the grant actually leaves plantations and slaves to the society of the propagation of the gospel in foreign parts in England to support its missions um, and it leaves money to um, Oxford University in England where Codrington had attended his alma mater and then it leaves a fund, um, a plantation, to support a college on the island. That college isn't established for um, you know, basically another 30, 35 years. But in fact, actually, one of the things one finds is an extraordinary amount of West, uh, of West Indian wealth being funneled into American colleges. from this, Long before the Codrington Grant was established by Christopher Codrington, Harvard was actually in the West Indies seeking both students and donations. You know, when William and Mary is founded in 1693, the Virginia College depends heavily upon the local planters. It, it's a it's a planters college, and so it's very much a regional local school that uses the local slave wealth to sustain itself. Yale is established eight years later, in 1701, and Yale then begins seeking students and donations well beyond Connecticut's borders, often turning toward the West Indies. By the middle of the 18th century, when all the new colleges are established, uh, you know, the Princeton, the University of Pennsylvania, Columbia, Brown, Rutgers, and Dartmouth, between 1746 and 1769, that 23-year period, six new colleges are established on the mainland, meaning that the number mm. of colleges in mainland North America triples from three to nine. That's the height of the African slave trade. And these colleges are now aggressively pursuing the West Indians, um, as sources of both money and students. Uh, John Witherspoon at Princeton, this, uh, the president who comes from Scotland to help save this struggling college in 1768, almost immediately writes a missive to the West Indians in which he de declares that the very name of a West Indian has come to imply great opulence. Um, he continues to bow before the Jamaicans and the Barbadians um, and to present Princeton as the logical place for them to send their sons because wealthy boys from the West Indies will be preyed upon by unscrupulous people if you send them to England's universities. But if you send them up to Princeton, New Jersey, they'll be well taken care of, they'll be carefully attended to, and they'll be churned into good Christian men and sent back to their families as productive citizens. You're listening to a one-hour discussion with author and historian Craig S. Wilder. We're going to take a short station break when we return more about his book, Ebony and Ivy, Race, Slavery, and the Troubled History of America's Universities. Well, you can tell everybody Yeah, you can tell everybody Go ahead and tell everybody I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. Yes, I am, yes, I am, yes, I am. I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. I believe every lie that I ever told. 
paid for every heart that I ever stole. I played my cards and I didn't fold. Well, it ain't that hard when you got soul. Somewhere I heard that life is a test. I've been through the worst, but I still get my best. God made my mold different from the rest. Then he broke that mold, so I know I'm blessed. Stand up now and face the sun. Won't hide my tail or turn and run. It's time to do what must be done. Be a king when kingdom comes. Well, you can tell everybody. Yeah, you can tell everybody. I'm Elliot Gould, and you're listening to Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott. Welcome back. This is Sojourner Truth. I'm your host, Margaret Prescott. We will now continue our discussion with MIT professor of history and author Craig S. Walder about his book, Ebony and Ivy, Race, Slavery, and the Troubled History of America's Universities. In your book, you don't leave south of the border out of it. I mean, you talk about what happened in in places like Peru and and other parts of of Latin America and and what the Jesuits did, because there is such a relationship also with this kind of religious fervor that you kill the natives and enslave the Africans, right? And with all kinds of justifications. Yeah, you know, Harvard, the story of Harvard doesn't make sense without the Catholic story. Uh, you know, you, you actually have to, a hundred years before Harvard's established, the first college in the Americas is established by um, Catholic priests in um, what's now um, the Dominican Republic in Santo Domingo. It's the Autonomous University in Santo Domingo. Um, and it's still there. You know, the, the Dominican Republic to this day has the oldest university in the Americas. It's right there. You know, uh, as, you know, I'm probably the one person who went to the Dominican Republic and didn't go to the beach. I went to the university. <laughs> I also went to Barbados and never saw a beach. I went to Codrington College. Yeah, and, yeah it's um, beautiful. hung out on campus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely gorgeous. And wandered around that campus, you know, the, um, the entire time. But, you know, a hundred years before Harvard in 1536, the Jesuits established a college in Santo Domingo. And the role of the college in Santo Domingo is the conversion of the indigenous population and the supplying of the administrations of this new Spanish empire that's being built in the Americas. In the aftermath of the construction of that school, everywhere that Spain invaded, everywhere that Spain colonized, Mexico, Peru, Colombia, it established universities. And the role of the universities was the conversion of the indigenous population, the codification of indigenous languages, and the universities were sustained by a network of plantations that used enslaved Africans to support the institutions, to generate the wealth that allowed these institutions to carry out their missions. And so the largest slaveholders in Spanish America will actually be the Jesuit priests, the Jesuit order. Um, by the time that they're expelled from the Americas, um, uh, you know, a cent- oh, two centuries later. And so you have, in fact, from the very beginning of European colonialism in the Americas, this very close tie between the establishment of universities, the conquest of native people, and the um, use of enslaved African labor to support the missions of the university and the processes of conquest. And I'm speaking with uh, Dr. Craig Stephen Walder. Um, he has a book, Ebony and Ivy, Race, Slavery, and the Troubled History of the Americas. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Now, uh, Dr. Walder, another sort of myth that there is around uh, has to do with the numbers of people enslaved in the eastern part of the United States than the colonies. Yeah. You know, one of the things I wanted to do with the book was you you have to break down, as you described it, a lot of the myths that we have about the nature of slavery in colonial America. One of them is this clear distinction that we draw, which is really based upon the later history of the establishment of the United States between the West Indian colonies and the North American mainland colonies. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that myth needs to be shattered. We have to get beyond that or you never understand 
you know, what happens in New England. You can't understand the history of New England without understanding the history of Barbados and Jamaica. And, and the same thing is true for the Mid-Atlantic. The history of New York is, in fact, intimately tied to the history of the West Indies. Um, another myth that we have to break down is a myth about the about where the geography of slavery itself, in which we tend to imagine that the enslaved population is in the West Indies and the American South, um, and the relationship between the northern colonies and those places is fairly loose. And and the way you break down that myth is really by remembering first that the Atlantic slave trade is largely organized through the northern colonies, that the chief slaving port of the Americas is actually Providence, Rhode Island, that Boston, Philadelphia, New York are all, in fact, competing to enter into that trade and to dominate that trade, and that one of the consequences of this heavy northern involvement in the slave trade is the growth of a population of enslaved black people in the northern colonies themselves, and particularly in the slave in the um, areas surrounding these slave trading ports. You know, and so you find, in fact, in Manhattan, probably you know one out of five people at its height is an enslaved African. In mm. Brooklyn, it's one out of three. Um, and part of the logic of this is actually that Brooklyn, like much of New England, um, is a largely agricultural um, society, but much of the agricultural product, the, the rise of a kind of commercial agriculture, is intended to supply the plantations in the South and in the West Indies. And so there is, in fact, a real use of unfree labor in the northern colonies to help produce the materials that will supply slavery in the southern colonies and the West Indian colonies. And so uh, one of the things I wanted to do in the book was really to show the dramatic rise of the black population in the Americas. And I think it really is easy to forget the sweeping demographic transformation of the Americas that takes place in the centuries after Columbus. I often do this with my students. I think most of my students are ready for the moment because they've taken a lot of United States history and American history, North American history. Most of us are ready for this moment when people of European descent come to outnumber um, Native Americans. But what they might not be ready for, what we're often not ready for, is the moment when people of African descent come to outnumber Native Americans. And so one of the things I did in the book is I, you know, I tried to just show the, the impact of all of this by reminding people that probably as early as, in fact, earlier than 1750, the black population of the 13 seaboard colonies, the 13 colonies that eventually established the United States, um, before 1750, somewhere before, the black population actually comes to outnumber the entire Native American population east of the Mississippi River. And so one of the ways in which we have to think about the role of the slave trade and the role of slavery um, in shaping colonial society is that it's funding the constant expansion of the colonies, the constant push into Native American territory, the constant push westward is actually allowed by both the slave trade and the expansion of African slavery. Fifty years later, there are likely more black people in the um, on the Atlantic seaboard of the United States, of the early nation, than there are Native Americans everywhere in what's now the continental United States. You know, these are sweeping demographic transformations, and unless we actually think about them in those terms, you miss a lot about American history. Our guest is Craig Stephen Walder, Dr. Walder, who is a history professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and he has a book out entitled Ebony and Ivy, Race, Slavery, and the Troubled History of America's Universities. I recall reading um, not that long ago about the this huge slave grave that was found in New York City under what is around Wall Street and that it was found that a lot of those who were buried there were actually worked to death. They were worked so hard that they literally died from uh, overwork. And one has to keep that level of, of brutality in mind as well. One of the things that my daughter actually pointed out to me, she says, Mom, you know, I feel as if I was born in, a, in another era that I could have been made into a purse. And that wasn't so far-fetched because it was the use of African skin as hides to make bags, uh, uh, the way that Holocaust Holocaust victims that happened to Holocaust victims in Germany that were skin was used to make lampshades and, and various other knickknacks. Right. And that has to be part of looking at this 
the the, the entire thing um, as well in relation to the in, university. In fact, actually, mm-hmm. and one of the things I, I I hope I do in the book is really to break down some also yet yet another. Um, uh, you know, body of myths about the nature of slavery in the northern states. And so when we admit that slavery was, you know, that we had slavery in the northern colonies and northern states, we then, in fact, had tended to create another myth about it, that it was somehow gentler and milder and and sort of fundamentally at its core, it, it more humane than slavery in the South um, and the West Indies, the, the other comparison points. Um, and in fact, actually, if one looks at the nature of slavery on campus, the the people who were enslaved on college campuses, um, you know, Eliezer Wheelock, the founder of Dartmouth College, um, which is founded in 1769, arrives in New Hampshire with eight enslaved black people, um, seven adults and a child. He's got more slaves than faculty. He's got more slaves than trustees. And in fact, an honest accounting would say that he has more slaves than actual students. Uh, the largest population of people on early Dartmouth campus are slaves. Well, Wheelock actually, you know, um, is in one episode, um, calls the sheriff um, onto the campus for the purpose of, um, you know, basically having beaten one of his slaves, um, who he thinks has actually um, stepped beyond the line of good behavior. Um, here in Boston, one of the presidents of Harvard, Benjamin Wadsworth, had earlier given a um, a sermon while he was a minister in Boston before he took the presidency um, about the necessity of beating slaves, the biblical imperative to actually beat servants to make sure that they um, behaved. Um, you know, and he, he quoted scripture as he instructed his audience that it was their moral duty um, to inflict physical punishments on the slaves in order to keep them in line. Wadsworth actually had a slave with him while he was the president of Harvard, Titus Wadsworth, who lived right on the Harvard campus in the president's house. And so, you know, the violence that attends slavery also attends slavery in the North, but one can actually extend that. The academy rises by feeding upon the rise of the Atlantic slave trade and African slavery in the Americas. Um, It's a source of both funding of students, um, of much of the wealth of the colonial college, um, but also when we begin to build science programs and medical programs, uh, those faculties use the bodies of enslaved people and other marginalized people like Native Americans and sometimes the Irish for instructional purposes. And so at Dartmouth, Eliezer Wheelock, the founder, his personal physician, takes the body of an enslaved black man who just passed and removes the entire skin from it he then boils this man, Cato. Um, he boils his body in a large kettle to separate the bones. Um, he wires the bones into a skeleton for instructional purposes, and then he takes the skin of Cato, the entire skin of the man, to the tanner, who, the leather tanner who serves the college, and has it tanned so that he can use it to wrap his medical instrument case. Mm. His, his bag is actually wrapped in the skin of a Negro. We also know that mm. at Harvard College, In 1763, there's a fire in Harvard Hall, which destroys, um, a fire burns Harvard Hall, and um, one of the, in the list of um, the things that were lost in the fire um, is included the jaw of a famous Indian chief, I believe that's um, Metacomet, King Philip, who the English call King Philip, um, the famous King Philip of King Philip's War in 1675, but also the entire hide of a Negro which had been tanned like leather for instructional purposes. And so, yeah, the the rise of the sciences in the 18th century, the rise of medicine um, and the sciences in the 18th century, um, feeds upon the bodies of living and enslaved uh, people, uh, living and dead enslaved people, and and they become the material for the rise of the sciences. So on this thing about the, 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 the importance then of universities, um, coming out with these scholars and training these scholars who then have these theories that fundamentally justify slavery by uh, the inferiority of people of African descent. So tell us a, a little about that, because that was really an important uh, role and perhaps even some of the purpose that they were so anxious to get the colleges going in the first place. There was um, a perception that I had, actually, and I think a lot of historians have, of the rise of racial science um, largely taking place in Europe 
um, and then expanding outward from there and being projected outward from there. And so in part, one of the things I had done was I, I went to some of the key centers for science instruction in the colonial world in the 18th century, and I looked at, um, I was researching the lecture notes of the professors, in part because I wanted to figure out how students in the 18th century learned race and what they were learning. And one of the things I noticed was actually that there was a lot less about race in many of these lectures than I thought there would be. But there was something else that was quite striking, which was the rise of a population of American-born colonial students in Europe. You know, by the 18th century, there are enough Virginians at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland to form a Virginia club. And the um, and students from the American colonies, from New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Virginia, Barbados, are actually flooding into the best schools in Europe to study medicine and science. Um, there's a race, actually, by the early 1760s between the New Yorkers and the Philadelphians to finish the medical program in Scotland, in Edinburgh, and then to get back to establish the first medical school in the colonies. The Philadelphians win, and the first college, medical college will be at the um, University of Pennsylvania, and it will begin in part when, this, when the colonial government transfers to the new medical faculty the body of a Negro um, so that they can actually show the intellectual importance and, and, and power of dissection and anatomy through a public um, dissection. Um, the, the next one will be established at King's College, which is now Columbia University in Manhattan. Um, and again, you know, it's, it's access to the bodies of enslaved people. Um, but the other thing that I realized as I was sort of tracing the journeys of these students is that when young Americans actually arrived in Europe at these centers for the study of science, they often got transformed on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean into experts on race because they actually were coming from places many of them are the you know are from slave holding families from plantations families in the virginia in virginia the carolinas and the west indies but the northerners are also often from slave holding families in places like new jersey and new york um, many of them have intimate relationships with africans and native americans and they emerge in europe as sort of experts on race and particularly on the populations of people in the Americas. They're producing dissertations at times, for instance, on the course of disease among Native Americans. They're giving lectures on the frequency of certain kinds of conditions and diseases and the impact of certain kinds of diseases on Native Americans and Africans, the difference um, between different populations of people and their resistance to diseases. Um, they, they emerge as experts, and, and then when they get back to the Americas, um, a lot of that expertise, or at least that claim to expertise, becomes central to the project of establishing these new medical schools and science faculties. Um, so that by the, you know, what, what the chapter that you talk about on the bodily and mentally, uh, mental inferiority of the Negro is the title of the chapter, it looks at an early 19th century case, an 188 case in New York City, in which the court calls upon the leading medical experts for testimony in what's a paternity case. Um, and what's that question is the um, the the father of a child um, who's now being sought uh, the father's being sought out under a new New York State law, and there's a possibility that it's Alexander Whistlow, a black man, or an unnamed white man, and the court can't determine the paternity, and so what they do is they turn to a series of experts. They draw the experts from these new colleges, um, from the you know, what's now Columbia, what, what's Columbia College's medical school, the College of Physicians and Surgeons in New York, the Rutgers University Medical School, which was then Queens College, and the College of Philadelphia, University of Pennsylvania Medical School. And these experts actually now display the power of racial science as they attempt to determine the paternity of this child. But it's a remarkable moment for understanding both how fully, how quickly, and how decisively racial science emerges in the Americas and achieves a kind of legitimacy in the intellectual cultures of the Americas and how important Americans are to that process. Yeah, and, and, and very important in the post-slavery era with, uh, you know, uh, Jim Crow and uh, and even today, right. there, there's some of that still bantering yeah, no, there is. around. There is. Yeah. In, at, every, at every elite university in the United States, there's some version of um, this science. 
yeah, still yeah. being produced. Yeah. And I'm speaking with uh, Dr. Craig Stephen Wilder, and he has a book out entitled Ebony and Ivy Race, Slavery, and the Troubled History of America's Universities. I did want to uh, you to say a bit, too, about the American Colonization Society. The book ends, the honest ending of the book is in the 1830s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's an um, epilogue that takes us a bit further up to the Civil War. Um, but really, in fact, the primary um, part of the book, the real central arguments of the book, end in the 1830s. And there's a reason for that. The reason was that the 1830s is a period when I think the modern American university emerges. The university that we recognize today, the college that we recognize today, emerges roughly in the 1830s. The 1830s are the period when colleges throw off the final vestiges of their early relationship to churches. Um, and we didn't talk about this, but um, you know, the earliest of the colleges, the colonial colleges, are denominational schools. So you know, the College of Rhode Island, which is now Brown, is a Baptist college. Um, the College of New Jersey, which is now Princeton, is a Presbyterian college. Columbia is Anglican. Um, you know, and so the, the colleges are actually denominational schools. They throw off the final vestiges of their connection to the church by the 1830s. Um, and they enter into a new moment in which they can occupy the public sphere independently, where they become important institutions in the public affairs of the United States, um, no longer subordinate to the church. And part of the path to that new political presence, to that new public presence and public role, is actually their expertise, over the claimed expertise, over questions like race and the appropriate makeup of the citizenry of the United States. And I look at this in a number of ways, and one of them is the over-representation of academics in movements like the colonizationist movement. The American Colonization Society is founded in 1817 um, with the purpose of removing free black people from the United States to some place outside the United States. In 1822, the Colonization Society establishes the Liberia colony on the African coast, and the Reverend Ralph Randolph Gurley, who's the principal agent of the society, um, invents the name Liberia for that colony. But the goal of the Colonization Society to remove the free black population runs parallel with a series of removal campaigns that actually define a whole generation of American history, really a good 30-year period of American history. One has to understand colonization in dialogue with the campaign to remove uh, for Indian removal, the 1830 Indian Removal Act, and the campaign to remove Native American nations from the southeastern seaboard states, sort of forced migration west of the Mississippi River, um, and movements like the um, Society for the Amelioration of the Condition of the Jews in New York, which is seeking to convert the Jewish population to Christianity or to fund their removal to some place outside the United States. When you put these movements together and you think about how attracted so many Americans were, we're talking about you know, millions of people who were attracted to movements to racially and religiously homogenize the United States and create an all-white, all-Christian nation. One of the things that's stunning about this is that the logic beneath these movements was largely crafted on campus. It was the emergence of a kind of racial science and a definition of race that made the inclusion of other people um, unacceptable because it, it made permanent the differences between human beings, immutable, unchangeable, and fixed. And it provided a rationale for projecting a future of the American nation in which progress almost seemed to require racial hom- homogeneity or a certain kind of ethnic cleansing in which people were simply removed from the society. Academics are, in fact, completely overrepresented in the American Colonization Society, about probably three-quarters of the campuses in the United States by the 1830s are actually um, have relationships to the American Colonization Society. At the height of its power, the president of the American Colonization Society is the former president of the United States, James Madison. His vice president is the president of Yale, the Reverend Jeremiah Day, and, and Reverend Day's status within the Colonization Society doesn't rest upon his status as a minister 
which in the 18th century would have been, in fact, the reason why he entered into public affairs. A college president would enter into public affairs, like during the American Revolution. A lot of college presidents are actually actively engaged in the American cause, but typically they're actually standing on their credentials as ministers, as representatives of, of church uh, populations. By the 19th century, when Day is standing uh, at the top of the American colonization society, he's standing on his status as an academic, as someone who has a claim to secular expertise and who has definitions of the future of the nation and a vision of the future of the nation, which is informed by an expertise that has been generated on campus and uses the unshakable claims of science as its foundation. Well, Dr. Craig Stephen Wilder, professor of American history at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, also is taught at Williams College and Dartmouth College, has a book out now, Race, Slavery, and the Troubled History of America's University, Ebony and Ivy. Sadly, we're out of time. I just can't believe it. Thank you for joining us. It did go quickly. We are out of time. I'd like to thank our guest, Professor Craig S. Wilder. Today's show was produced by Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank the entire Sojourner Truth team. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at one 800 735 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Thank you for listening. KBU Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBU in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certifications requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBU Community Radio's open meeting policy is available by calling the station at 503-231-8032. Meetings will be held at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, Oregon, unless otherwise noted. The events committee meets the third Thursday of each month at 6 p.m. Please call 503-231-8032 to verify if a meeting is being held. It's 10.01. You're listening to KBOO Portland. Stay tuned at 10.15 for Flashpoints with Dennis Bernstein. And at 11 o'clock on the Dirtbag, Glenn Andreessen will be here to talk all things gardening. And 